I kind of take the Mike Tyson approach. You know, he says everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Oh, right. So the plan becomes worthless immediately once the real world hits. <laughs> yeah. So I try to get as fast as possible into some sort of coding, knowing that whatever I come up with in my mind or on a whiteboard is usually going to be like, well, that was as soon as I start coding it, it'd be like, no, that actually sounded really good in my brain. But when it hits the real world, it ends up being tossed to the side anyhow. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by Micro. Micro, aka M3O, is a new cloud platform built for developers by developers. Our good friend, Asim Aslam, is leading this. And if you're tired of AWS and feeling overwhelmed by the cloud, infinite billing, and an endless sea of docs, it is time for a change. The Micro team is reimagining the cloud for the next generation. M3O is a new developer-friendly platform to explore, search, and use simpler APIs for everyday consumption all in one place. Get access to the APIs you need in one click and test them right there on the web before using them. Simple, fast, and affordable. You won't get burned by bottomless billing. You top up your account and pay as you go. And right now, they're in early development and building out the first set of APIs and they're looking for feedback from developers. Sign up and get $5 in free credits. Kick the tires, give them your input so they can build the best APIs you want to use every single day. Learn more at m3o.com. Again, m3o.com. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live on YouTube each and every Thursday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Subscribe to our channel for notifications at youtube.com slash changelog. And join in the conversation on Twitter. We are at JS Party FM. Okay, let's get right into it. Hey, it's party time, y'all. Welcome back, friends. It is JS Party Time. We have a fun show for you today. I am joined by Amel and Chris. Let's talk non-dev things, maybe pre-dev. Help me understand what we're about to talk about here. It's kind of like when you're not coding, there's tons of things around the code. There's decision-making, there's design, there's architecture, there's convincing people that what you're doing is the right thing. Aligning people. There's collaboration. There's just many concerns that happen even before you start to code and then you have like the coding stuff which we talk about all the time and then there's things that happen afterward so maybe we'll get to the after as well but we're gonna start with like before at least and this is a world that Amel you've been living in quite a bit decision making what to work on how to build it tell us what your thoughts are yeah Jared this is my life really I mean it feels like the longer I go in my career the less and less code I write and in some ways it's good in some ways it's annoying (laughs) Yeah. You know, some ways it's good because, you know, like, I think the thing that's changed for me is like, you know, when you first start out and you're really excited about software and, you know, you get your first job and, you know, you get your first task, like the thing you first start doing is banging your keys on the keyboard, you know, like you go right into the code, you don't even think. And then you're thinking and coding at the same time. And like all the cycles, (laughs) like you have like 20 million cycles before you get to the solution because you're like 
really bad at parallelizing your thought stream, right? Because it's like, it's hard to like write software and think about how you're going to write software at the same time, like to do it well mm -hmm. anyways. Takes years of experience to like do that seamlessly. But, you know, so, and now, you know, the, the more mature you get, you realize, oh, no, 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 you have to really design the problem, design the solution, think about it, iterate on it outside the keyboard sometimes, you yeah. know, potentially depending on how large the problem is, you know, get feedback from colleagues, align on it so you're not arguing over your, in your PR, you know, you don't have like a 200 comment PR, you know, because people have opinions and you've solved it a different way, you know, so there's just so much that goes into that pre-time. So in a sense that like, I'm happy now that like, I spend less time on keyboard because, you know, I know when to focus on keyboard. But I think the annoying thing comes for me in that like, the flip side of this also for me is that like, you know, being a, a principal, a lead engineer now, like, you're just like ahead of people and you're like in this like crazy land between engineering and product and design, like mm. and architecture and platform and this and that and IT, like sometimes even uh, and support, like you're in this world with all these other people that aren't writing software all the time necessarily, right? Like there are other stakeholders, technical or non-technical. And like, I just like, yeah, I'm just spending a lot of time there coming up with like how we're going to do what we need to do, iterate on that. And then come to my team with a plan. You know what I mean? Mm. And then it's like, go. <laughs> what does that plan usually look like? Like what level of granularity are we talking about? Here's a bunch of specs or here's some user stories to go work on. Are we talking about yeah. bigger picture? Like this is the direction that we're going. Give us more to hook into there. Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it's all of the above, quite frankly. You know, we have our kind of epic and product direction. I, I work at a product company. And so then it's kind of my job to like, come up with like myself and other colleagues of mine that are in lead, lead roles, like come up with essentially the architecture, the implementation, like the feasibility, what the MVP looks like, you know, what are the, do the trade-off analysis for like different options, you know, present that to kind of our stakeholders for feedback, get like a thumbs up there. And then when it comes down to like the actual team level, I'm involved with like, yeah, like the story creation and breakdown and like subtasks, like kind of like being a consultant on like, this is how we, we should do it. And then obviously from there, we iterate with the actual you know, folks that are going to implement it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm kind of involved at like both. And then even, you know, code reviewing it. And obviously at times when I get the chance these days, it's, it's like, it seems less and less with like actually contributing to the code. But yeah, I, I obviously work alongside that, but I'm heavily involved with the code review process. Yeah. obviously. And what about you, Chris? Are you a grab a ticket and work on it kind of a developer? Or are you higher level decision making in the strategy of the software? What's your role usually in this? Well, it varies. So my last job at IBM, it was uh, more of a dev advocacy, open source engineering type role. And so I'm working with the open source communities. I'm working with maintainers and, you know, foundation Peeps. And so I haven't been on a product team in really any capacity in a long time. And so I'm trying to think about how I work and how things happen in the open source world. Kind of, there are certainly quite a few differences in how work gets done and, you know, who does the work and where the ideas come from and how those ideas get bounced around to stakeholders or not. Mm -hmm. There's some interesting parallels though, Chris, which I think, you know, for example, folks thinking that like a maintainer 
like the lead maintainer of a large open source project needs to have like the highest number of commits, which is completely like a very false correlation. You know, there's so much governance that goes into open source. So I think for me, there's lots of parallels with the product, like with like enterprise product companies, like lots of parallels. And, you know, wouldn't you say? Well, I can't say I've really worked on much enterprise software, but it feels a bit like night and day to me. You know, I spent the earlier part of my career working on in product companies, building products, you know, working in, in a team, essentially like collaborating with designers and product people and all that sort of thing. And, and for the past five years or so, it hasn't looked like that. And I prefer what I'm doing now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, to, to clarify, Chris, I meant to say that the parallels are in how the software gets made. There's still a before code phase for large new features in like widely maintained, sure. like, mm-hmm. you know, adopted projects, you know, sometimes, and yeah. that before code phase usually involves an RFC, which is very similar to kind of what I would put together as my final sure. like proposal plan for like architecting a new set of features, you know? And so, you know, RFC, like I'm, th- and then you have like architecture proposal plan, like on my side, and then you have you know, feedback on the RFC and all the discussion. And, and that's, you know, those are your stakeholders. It's like the users of your library and the other maintainers, you know, and they mm. contribute to that issue on GitHub, right? They have that discussion. But for me, it's a series of like six to seven meetings over like, you know, four weeks or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, like we're not as good at async communication in, in enterprise land, unfortunately. Mm. Right. But, that's you know, meaning. for me, those are the parallels. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most open source projects don't have an RFC process. Oh, I'm thinking of large scale ones, like though, I guess. But right, most are very informal. Well, how about Mocha? I mean, that's the one that you maintain. Wouldn't you say that about startups, then? Yeah, Mocha is really informal as well. Yeah, I would expect it to be. I'm spending a lot of time working with Appium lately, and mm. it's also pretty informal. Right. Mm-hmm. What the, but. Most software development is informal, though. There's like a good chunk of the internet's websites code isn't living in GitHub. Like it's like not even, you know, it's like it's not even in source control, right? Like, you know, most like I think RFCs are the most formalized way, I think, in open source to collaborate on big ideas. But and I would say like not every company has an architecture committee review process, right? So it's like, right. you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at. Sure. So yes, this this RFC is uh, I can see the parallels there. I think I'm just kind of saying, well, just in my experience, the projects that I've worked with are not at that level, mm-hmm. and that's fine. You know, I, I certainly wish certain projects would have a, an RFC process, but mm-hmm. you know, things happen how they happen. Yeah, we should talk to GitHub about putting that as a default template or issue type or whatever like i don't know you know what i mean now they'll have those like there could be a way to do that but anyways hope someone from github is listening (laughs) i think lots of us are kind of in the middle versus in either extreme it's probably more Mm -hmm. of us on the small extreme than the large extreme but i think many of us live like on a bell curve you know of like org size and infrastructure around their work and i think amel is probably representing the larger enterprise side where there's a lot of 
let's just call it ceremony for lack of a better term, but <laughs> things that need to happen. Cogs. Just kidding. But as developers, so I mean, all three of us here are developers, whether we're actively coding day in day or not. At a certain point, some sort of idea or spec or need comes to you and you're still pre-code, right? Like here it mm-hmm. is, whether it's a JIRA ticket that tells you exactly what needs to happen. Okay. Kind of not that interesting, but most JIRA tickets are written in a way that still you don't know what to do when you get it, right? <laughs> you're like, okay, now is I have this to. English? Yeah. <laughs> what in the heck what are this? they want here? Guess guess so. so when you get that, when you have that tangible thing, which is either a need or a user story or something, right? Like, hey, we're going to add comments to the website, right? Like, there you go. Before you're coding, are there processes? Are there things that you do personally, you know, in your dev work to figure out how you're going to attack that problem? Or is it just like break out the editor and start writing some tests or some code or pop open, you know, your Webpack config and just get it rocking? What do you guys do? I actually think in my head, Chris, before he starts coding or solving any problems, like he puts on like either like super heavy metal rock music and like cracks open a can of beer or he's like listening to classical music and smoking a cigar. It's like one of the two. And I'm trying to understand, Chris, which 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 of the two is closer to reality? And you're going to say neither, right? I'm a paradox. You know what? I, it, you know what? Damn it. I, you know, I thought a direct you, question would be one way to find out something more about you, but now you're just even more intriguing and mysterious. Damn it. This experiment failed, you know? Uh, <sighs> Mystique has never really been one of my strong suits, <laughs> but like, okay. My role now, a lot of my role is like this R and D like making hypotheses and, and doing research, building prototypes. And mm. that's that's a lot of my role right now. No wonder you're having fun. I'm loving it. And I get to come up with an idea and I go and I talk to people and say, okay, is this idea a stupid idea or is this idea something that I should build out more and see if it's 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 worth doing? And so I'll talk to people and find out and then I'll go either way with it. And then if they're like, yeah, it sounds like a great idea, then... Well, I'm going to build my prototype and I don't do a whole hell of a lot of thinking about what I'm going to build Mm -hmm. because I'm trying to get in there and see what's really possible Mm -hmm. and like which direction I should really take things. It's not necessarily, hey, let's like move very fast and do things like, you know, just barely scraping by just to get it out the door. It's not like that. It's experimentation. And yeah. That's fun. I find it like the easiest way for me to experiment is and and what makes the most sense to me is to actually build something and, you know, throw it away and go build something else. And I I mean, I throw away a lot of code. It's fine. I can live with myself, but I don't know if other people who may do more prototyping kind of do things that way. I'm pretty new to, I think, you know, having this as a defined part of my role. Yeah. So it like if there's a better way to do it other than just like getting in there and just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks, I'm all ears. Well, that sounds like a really fun role. I've done that some, but never like been cut loose to just, you know, research and develop. I sure would mm-hmm. like to. Oftentimes when I do those things, it's at the cost of something that I'm not doing which I know I should be doing or I could be doing. So there's opportunity cost, mm-hmm. which tends as a 
uh, someone who's running a small business, you tend to take the opportunity cost very highly because it's like, well, these things need to get done or else things fall apart. And these things might be great, but they're going to get dropped down. So I would love to have kind of unfettered access to idea prototyping and being able to just throw code away when it's not panning out, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't call it unfettered. I mean, it still needs to make sense. Well, I mean, sure. I'm unfettered in terms of, it's not that, it's like a part of what your allotted work time is for. Yes. Yes. So you're not opportunity costing necessarily. Like, well, I have this time dedicated to this role and I'm going to do the role. And that sounds great. So Mm -hmm. you're pretty fast. So you might come up with an idea. You might throw it past a colleague or maybe your users or your customers and then you're basically, at that point, breaking out the code and, and start coding. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Any whiteboarding, any pr- d- diagramming or anything you do? No. Go ahead, Amel. <laughs> no, I said that's a super cool job. Like, yeah. I love that. I'm um, jealous. All I'm of super sudden. jealous. Yeah. I'm so jelly. Yeah. Um, that's great. Um, the, you have the, to tell me if you get more creative over time or less creative over time. So my, I think I, my yeah. deepest fear is that I'm going to run out of ideas and I don't, you know, I just, I don't know if that, I'm curious how the creativity, like, mm. will, you know, that, because you're in a very creative role. So I'm just curious, like, if there's going to be, like, highs or lows. You know, but, but Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't tend to run out of ideas, but I have so many bad ideas. <laughs> and, and that's <laughs> why I need to, to like... You know, validate my assumptions yeah. and, and talk with people who know better than I do. How fast is your feedback loop? Like, when do you know your idea is bad? Are we talking within hours, within days, within weeks? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, uh, talk to a couple of people, maybe get that done in a week or two and just kind of get a general, general feeling. Go and maybe build our little prototype and then from there you know there's it can become more formal where there's an actual like proposal but then like the and i haven't gotten to this part of the job yet but it seems like there might be a drawback where i had this idea and i've built my prototype and i've written the proposal and everybody loves the proposal and somebody else implements it but mm. I don't get to. <laughs> and like, that might be a little weird for me. Isn't it more likely that the prototype becomes the implementation? Isn't that how things usually work? It's pretty unlikely. Okay. Well, that's a disciplined company up, then. Um, well, I'm not like, yeah. So, you know, I work for a product company and there are people building our products, but I'm not in their like division or whatever. Uh, I'm not, I'm not on those teams. And so, you know, we're fairly, like, sequestered, I guess. There's no, I don't think there's really any way I'm going to build some dumb prototype and it's going to actually show up on our website. So, Well, that's good discipline, like I said. They are a testing company, you know. Don't you work at Sauce Labs? Mm -hmm. And I know from a recent email that you guys just acquired Backtrace. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Thank I was you. like, did you really need to Thank email you. me about that sauce labs? Like, I felt like I really didn't need to know, but I'm I, now that I know, congratulations. You know, <laughs> really excited. Are so, you also in mergers and acquisitions, Chris? Or no, no, no. no. <laughs> supposed to say no comment. You're supposed to stay mysterious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of your um, good ideas. Yeah. Well, to actually answer your question, Jared, um, yes. I, you know, for me, like, there is no. Like at this point, I can't even think of the last time I was 
figuring out how I wanted to design the problem before writing it. So my hands don't touch the keyboard until I, I kind of know how I want to target this problem exactly. So my time on the keyboard is very scapular as a result of that. You know? mm. I'm like slice and dice. I need to get from point A to point B, and there and it's like it's like okay, most efficient route. Doot, 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 doot. That's it. And the only reason why I know what the most efficient route is, or my preferred route, is because I've thought about it in advance of writing anything or t- touching the keyboard. Okay. So yeah, so that's my you know, it's like required like for me. Like it's very anxiety inducing to like bright code before you know exactly how you want to finish the solution end to end. So it gives me anxiety. This episode is brought to you by Sentry. Build better software faster. Diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry, including us. Sentry also recently shipped a new SDK for Next.js applications. Check the show notes for links to more details. Best of all, our listeners get the team plan for free for three months. Head to Sentry.io and use the code THECHANGELOG when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code THECHANGELOG. Kind of take the Mike Tyson approach. You know, he says everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Oh, right. So the plan becomes worthless immediately once the real world hits. <laughs> yeah. So I try to get as fast as possible into some sort of coding, knowing that whatever I come up with in my mind or on a whiteboard is usually going to be like, well, that was, as soon as I start coding it, I'd be like, no, that actually sounded really good in my brain. But when it hits the real world, it ends up being uh, tossed toss to the mm-hmm. side anyhow so i'm pretty fast to just experiment and maybe just think through like some small code you know using kind of a tdd mm-hmm. flow to like design the solution and let it kind of come out somewhat organically that doesn't mean i don't put any thought into anything i'm not just like a head mm-hmm. west and start coding mm-hmm. but rarely will i spend too much time before having something that i can at least touch and feel you know intellectually. yeah that's awesome amal you're like you're building big Things. Yeah, usually. But even when I'm working on a small feature, I kind of like know exactly what I need to do before I like touch the keyboard. Like I don't like like figuring it out while I'm trying to write the code. Like, yeah. uh, you know, I like to look at the code, know where I need to make the change, like do my research, walk around, you know, like like snoop, look for how someone else did it and see if they're, you know, like if I like see if I even need to invent the solution, you know. Yeah. I like to, you know, is there prior art? Is there, like, you got sure. it, you know? You don't, like, otherwise you're just, like, reinventing the wheel or, like, forgetting to use a common util that already existed. and You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it pays to, like, do a little bit of, like, how I do this investigation, you know? And literally, I did not accidentally forget a word. It's literally how I do this. How do, for short. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, you know? so maybe I maybe I spoke too brashly. I think I mean because I also do those things. Maybe I just don't think about that as planning as much as like that's part of the process. Like, do I even have to write this code? Is always a question that yeah, I'm asking, yes, right? that's what I'm saying. That's so the first I'll thing, try to like, you have to be lazy. Yeah, so I'm just kind of um, like, dork- I guess I just think figure that out, it's like dorking around time. You know, like I'm yeah. not actually doing anything yet, but maybe I am. I'm like no, you formulating. are. Yeah, you are. Trust me, your mind is a 
powerful weapon, Jared. Thank you. So, you know, you, are you just made the soundboard. You are. Oh, God. <laughs> of course I did. Of course. Self-serving uh, comment. Oh, my God. Right there. Could you just anonymize my out. voice? Okay, I don't want to forever be associated by as like the woman who's. Is she the woman behind Jared? Your, your mind, mind is, is a powerful, powerful weapon, powerful Jared. Weapon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. that's my claim to fame now because you're constantly playing it. It's like ends up on all the podcasts. That's right. Change I just. <laughs> I just show up as a guest on other people's shows and just play that clip. Yeah. Mind is a powerful. Yeah. Anyways. So no, your mind is constantly solving problems and like our employers get a lot of free time from us. I mean, uh, unpaid labor, I should say, you know, and subconscious is, yeah, it's much more absorbent than your conscious mind. Yeah. So even when your conscious mind is skimming, you know, back when I was doing consulting, I would tell that to my potential clients. I would say, if your problems are interesting enough, I'll work for you 24-7, but I'll only charge you for the times when I'm writing the code because yeah. <laughs> I actually can't stop thinking about it, you know? Exactly, exactly, exactly. I think they like that. So it's like a puzzle. Yep. And we're lucky we get to solve problems for a living, so lucky us, Jerry. It's fun. And it Chris. Fun. And Chris gets to solve problems that he devises, too. He can just come up with something and solve it. Yeah, he can make up his own stuff. Yeah, right? create my Keep own problems. Keep himself employed. <laughs> Yeah. Right. See, I create the bug and then I fix the bug. Yeah. I'm creating my own work. <laughs> yeah. But the challenge with Chris's job, which is why, Chris, I'm really genuinely curious about this for you, is like, you know, for me, it's very much in <laughs> you're, you're in hard mode all the time. Like, I live my life in sprints. Like, I like, like working really hard for a month or two months and then taking like a down month where I like chill out. And I feel like when you're in R&D and you're working on this creative project and it's like, okay, one thing after another, after another, like, I feel like you have a lot of high intensity intervals for your brain. So I'm really excited to see like, you know, what that's like for you, like over time, mm. you're just like, no, I'm an idea factory. He's not going to tell you to mill it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think uh, maybe it's just like a different style of how I prefer to work because mm -hmm. like, What's really going to stress me out is like daily standups and mm -hmm. deadlines and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, if I can provide some vague, well, I think it'll take me, you know, this long to have something to show. Mm -hmm. And then I'm not going to freak out about that. But like, you know, I don't get too stressed out working this way let's just uh, put it that way yeah no but like you just like hit something for me that's like so important which you know we should double click into for folks like especially folks who are managers that are listening to this please pay attention i'll give you a minute to take out your notebooks <laughs> <laughs> do, 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 do. okay so chris like what you just said was like i don't have all these external artificial like deadlines and pressures and like, you know, and that's what gives me, and also just like cadence meetings, which really are much, very, you know, they're more like chores than they are useful, you know, like sometimes like stand-ups, groomings, whatever the hell else, like I'm given this kind of unfederated control of my time and creativity. And that's because of that, like, I don't see myself really getting tired of this and, or just whatever, like I'm productive and happy, like, managers whatever like it's about output you know and i really do think we have a lot of rigidity in like what we expect of engineers and their time and also like their ability to be productive like some people are better 
like at night and some people prefer writing software in the mornings or whatever. And, you know, some people like if they have one meeting in the middle of the day, it throws their entire day off. Like makers hours are a thing and they're different than manager hours. And, you know, I think we should be working more towards like making our makers as you know happy and comfortable as possible because writing software is an art and like you have to respect the creative brain that's required to like produce that. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. For our listeners out there building applications with Square, if you haven't yet, you need to check out their API Explorer. It's an interactive interface you can use to build, view, and send HTTP requests that call Square APIs. API Explorer lets you test your requests using actual sandbox or production resources inside your account, such as customers, orders, and catalog objects. You can use the API Explorer to quickly populate sandbox or production resources in your account. Then you can interact with those new resources inside the seller dashboard. For example, if you use API Explorer to create a customer in your production or sandbox environment, the customer is displayed in the production or sandbox seller dashboard. This tool is so powerful and will likely become your best friend when interacting with, testing, or playing with your applications inside Square. Check the show notes for links to the docs, the API Explorer, and the developer account signup page, or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to jump right in. Again, check for links in the show notes or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to play right now. This segment, we're going to be talking about a recent Dan Abramov blog post about NPM audit, which probably at this point we're all aware of NPM audit, and that's kind of one of the things this post is covering. We had some uh, folks from NPM on the show way back when. The company that got acquired and was doing the audit stuff got it rolled out together. I can't remember the fellow's name. Very nice guy talking about NPM audit, but here we are. It's probably a couple of years later, and Dan Abramov says the way NPM audit works is broken. It's rollout as a default after every NPM install was rushed, inconsiderate, and inadequate for front-end tooling. He then goes on to say, have you ever heard the story of the, about the boy who cried wolf? And we probably have heard that one, where every time he cried wolf, it was a false alarm, and then when it was finally true... You know, his parents didn't believe him, and so the wolf ate the sheep. And Dan goes through in great detail how NPM audit works that way, mostly because there's so many false positives. They're not false insofar as it really is reporting real vulnerabilities. It's false because those vulnerabilities, for whatever reason, are irrelevant to your code in many cases. And so because of that, it's mostly an annoyance it makes everybody's lives a little bit worse for various reasons. And it was broken by design, he says, because it was added as the default post-install deal. So curious what you two think of what Dan has to say about NPM audit itself, but also about this general 
software challenge of tooling that is overly noisy and ends up basically making itself useless. I mean, think of notifications and things that we build in order to notify us when there's problems such as this, which in theory is very useful. Knowing when your code has vulnerability is very useful. But because of implementation or some of the hard problems out there to solve, end up becoming more of an annoyance and you, you just ignore it. You just don't pay any attention. Like, ah, oh, don't pay any attention to, it's like the compiler warnings, you know, ah, those warnings don't matter. And then when it actually has something that's real, you're no longer paying attention to it. What do y'all think? Well, I've complained about this for a couple of years and NPM audit itself, I don't see as being necessarily the problem, but it is part of the problem. So essentially, I think what Dan's saying in this article is, okay, somebody has paid a security researcher to go and find prototype pollution bugs in these random JavaScript libraries or what have you, okay? And that library might be consumed by, say, a build tool. And that build tool will output code but it doesn't really like have anything to do with that vulnerability. A, the like vulnerable code path might not even be hit. And B, even if it was hit, like the context in which the code is running, which is like a shell or a, you know, a command line is already like vulnerable because it's already a shell. Like it's just like all these warnings basically become then like irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And now why is it this way? Well, static analysis of, of security problems. So that's what NPM audit does. It looks and sees, oh, is there a dependency there that has like an associated CVE or whatever? And it says, oh, yes. And that's essentially all it's doing, right? And then certain other companies that uh, start with an S and end with a K, they uh, do s something similar. Um, where it's like, let's analyze your dependencies and see which ones are, are broken. Mm -hmm. But as I said before, it doesn't know that you're actually using the vulnerable code and it doesn't know where that vulnerable code will be run because it's examining code at rest, okay? It's like code at rest is not, it's a text file, okay? Mm -hmm. Like it's not a security risk in, until it is run, okay? And yeah. so then <laughs> wherever the code is run, that's where you mm -hmm. should worry about your attack surface, right? And so it's these static analysis tools are like essentially too dumb to do this. And with a language like JavaScript, which is extremely dynamic, it becomes an even tougher problem. With something like, say, a Java, you may have enough type information to an introspection to understand, okay, is this vulnerable code actually run? And maybe you can do that with static analysis. I don't know. Maybe it's something you want to throw machine learning at. I don't know. But the state of things now is that they just don't work very well. Most of what they're reporting is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And so then there's these two problems. One is this, the boy who cried wolf, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're confronted with all this noise and all these warnings and you eventually ignore them. The other one is the people who are in these maybe enterprise companies or whatever where the security or IT has mandated that the code must pass these audit checks. Right. You mean, you mean basically how? 
Right. <laughs> hell but, for most of us. But anyway, they exist, yeah. right? And so oh, you have to pass these audit absolutely. checks. You must make sure yeah. that... And you yeah. can understand from one, a higher-up perspective why that's like absolutely. a good decision. You know? Sure. Mm-hmm. And the way mm-hmm. NPM absolutely. works, and I don't know, maybe you can get around this problem with Yarn, is that if, if something in, say, Mocha is Mocha's consuming some transitive dependency that's broken, well, Mocha is going to have to upgrade out of that. Okay, it's not something that the consumer can do. Yeah, it's a supply chain problem. You're right. It's outside your control. And so we have people who have these like overzealous security policies that mean they have to pass the audit checks coming into the open source projects issue tracker and demanding that the stuff gets upgraded. Maybe that turns out to be like a hundred dependabot or renovate or whatever PRs like every week. I don't know, but it's just like a a flood of things and then people want it to be, so it creates more work for maintainers to try to manage what is essentially busy work because it's just irrelevant. The only real problem is that there's a warning and somebody's like company policy says they can't use the software until it's fixed and like their builds fail because of it. And that's like not something I can influence. I can certainly say that's stupid. Don't make your yeah. build fail on these things. But, you know, I can't do anything about what some random company decides they need to do. And yeah, and security people I've seen do take a hardline stance on this stuff. Well, you might as well upgrade, right? You should get used to upgrading. And it's good practice to avoid these vulnerabilities wherever we see them. At one level, that is true, but unless you're paying me to do that, I have no interest in it. And people aren't paying me to do that. And they're not paying open source maintainers to address that. So, yeah. so I, I'm going to have a mail continue to foam for just a second. I'm going to skip in line and just add on to that real quickly and say it's not just an NPM problem, like you said, because GitHub's notifications, their whole system does the exact same thing to me all the time. Yep. And... Yep. I'm always like, this is a relevant code. This, this is part of my build routine, build step of my assets, which becomes static and it never runs in any sort of capacity where it could be exploited. To their credit, you can click through on those and say like, this is irrelevant. Like you can give them, I'm not sure if they're capturing that feedback, you know, in terms of like learning, probably not, but they're at least allowing you to say, this audit is irrelevant, make it go away. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that would be compliant with certain orgs policies and stuff, but you don't have to go back and have the, the open source person just upgrade arbitrarily because I need my audit to pass. I can just go ahead into there and say, and it has like five or six options of why it may not be relevant. And so that's like, it still annoys me, but at least it gives me a escape hatch. So that's, yeah, there is no escape hatch with NPM. Yeah. Unless you adopt like third party tooling that gives you one. All right, Amel, unleash the, the wave. Yeah, no, I, first of all, just Chris, thank you so much for walking us through that. It was really great to get your summary and then also walk through your pain points, you know, both as an engineer, but also as a maintainer and someone yeah. who's been aware of these problems, you know, from the points of view that, that Dan Abramov also has, right? So for me, like, I feel like we've kind of created this problem for ourselves by not having more crowdsourced like the spec is broken in the sense that like um, it's missing context, right? So where's this code being run and what's the context and how does it link into dev dependency versus production dependency? And like, 
those are inputs to really saying this is actually a vulnerability that matters or isn't, right? And like, that's kind of what you were saying. Like, that's, that's the missing piece. But like, that should just be part of the spec and parts of that data should be crowdsourced and, you know, or there should be a consensus or some, I don't know, some way of like saying like, okay, well, like 700 people agree that this is not important, you know, like 90%, over 90 whatever, high number of percentage of people, this number of minimum threshold, right? Like, so similar to like a machine learning um, training model, usually you want to you wanna give it like a, a score, like, hey, this machine learning algorithm is 80% sure that this is a picture of a cat, right? Like some, something like that for saying like, hey, this vulnerability is not applicable to your context. And so it's safe to ignore. And that could just be input. That could just be part of a configuration where you, you know, specify like where these dependencies are being used in what context. And then based on that, like it's a, you have a customized report output of what's actually a vulnerability to you. Like, I just feel like we can fix this problem for ourselves if we take that approach, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know if you think that would work, Chris. For that some small subset of people, like it is going to be helpful because it is going to surface a vul- an actual vulnerability. And so, yeah, you'd want to know about it. You wouldn't want that information to be squelched because it's not a problem for most people, but it actually is for you. I don't know. I don't know what to do about that. And, you know, I feel like whatever the real, like, end game solution is, it needs to be like a combination of examining your code at rest and examining your code or in the runtime and, and what happens when it runs. And that's going to vary depending on the language and platforms that you use. So JavaScript, as we can see from this whole debacle, you're going to learn more about if a program is actually vulnerable when that code is running because it will have hit the code. And how do you know if something hits a code path? Well, I think in you probably like figure that out with... I can't remember the word for it. It's like proving your code is correct. It's like a way to prove. I can't remember the word for it, but you could like do that with certain languages, but probably not JavaScript. Like you could prove that, hey, this vulnerable line will get run or it won't get run or it could get run and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think like, uh, like if you're running, say, tests, mm-hmm. that's a great opportunity to do this sort of check for hey, you're hitting this line in Lodash version whatnot, and it's bad. Right. Um, you know, I think we could build tools like that. Yeah, I just, it's like a world of opportunity. I, it's such a hard problem to solve as um, with one turnkey solution, right? Like, it's like a multifaceted approach. And so I think solving each segment alone is valuable, but it feels like it's, I don't know, maybe it's, it alone doesn't maybe not enough of a commercial value for companies to pop up or, and a service that like, I don't know, it's kind of like an all or nothing situation, you know, like, I think that's maybe why this problem hasn't been solved yet, quite frankly. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure there's really a, a big incentive and maybe there yeah, is there's not an incentive enough you know? like for NPM to devote resources to mm-hmm. do something here. Mm-hmm. You know, do they want to be in the market? Do they want to really compete with sneak or whatever? You know, mm-hmm. Right. I mean, well, I mean, NPM at this point is basically just is GitHub, but I think it's interesting 
that the focus is on like AI spitting out your code, you know, having a co-pilot. Yeah. You know, writing my bugs for me. Yeah. Because they, you know, it's similar to kind of like, you know, GitHub should be invested in the ecosystem because the ecosystem is what feeds them, right? Like a healthy developer ecosystem, you know, healthy open source ecosystem, whatever the hell else, like, you know, so they would be the perfect people to tackle this problem deeply because they can, they, they, you know, they have the resources to do it and the connections and the whatever, all of that stuff. This would be an area for them to, I think, like demonstrate some leadership. I, you know, I hope they do. So we'll see. So Dan did post three kind of quasi solutions or workarounds, mm-hmm. none of which a couple of what we've discussed here, none of which are spectacular. I think short term, what NPM should do is cut a new version of the client and just disable the default, right? Let us opt into this versus opt out. Probably they're not going to do that, but I think that would at least take care of the crying of the wolf. And, you know, if you want someone to yell at you, then you have to pass the flag. NPM has been making some pretty bold changes lately, like some very aggressive ones, like, for example, the, you know, peer dependencies, you know, being installed Forio and V7. I don't know if y'all curious, you're aware of this, you know, so basically like V7 is potentially a massively breaking change for like lots of people because of this, you know, peer dependency install or what like are the implications bundle sizes getting increased or whatever else. It's that like, if you have missing or incorrect version, I think of the peer dependency, it just, it's now going to auto install it for you versus just warning where people like, get the warning and maybe they fix it, maybe they don't. But like something's behaving potentially differently now, you know? Like I think this should have been in the spec from the beginning. Don't, like, but retroactively, retroactively adding it now is I think potentially really reckless. I thought it used to do this and they changed it not to because of dependency hell. I don't know the issues off the top of my head, but, and then now they're changing it back for, I have no idea why. And I have no idea why they disabled it in the first place, mm-hmm. other than it was causing yeah, it problems been. when there's, I think, just the mismatches between peer dependencies. Like if you have dependency A, which depends on B version 5, and mm-hmm. you have dependency C, which depends on B version 6, mm-hmm. then there's like, you're stuck because you need peer dependencies of both five and six of B, and you can mm-hmm. only install one of them. And I don't know what they're doing about that now. I don't, so. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, but that's the thing. It's like changing the spec at this stage, like at the, at the scale that they're at, like, oof, I don't know, you know? I mean, the reality is most people who use NPM upgrade with their Node version. Rarely does the average company hmm. set of users do an npm install dash g npm because right. npm is an npm package by the way i know it's super meta but npm install dash g npm is like what you use to like bump your version of npm which doesn't doesn't depend on the version of node and so it's like like people aren't gonna start hitting this until they get to like late, later node versions where you know it's been caught with v7 so you know it could be a slow rolling like discovery and that's why it's really like you need to be really responsible when you have a tool that's that widely adopted and Mm. used you know like you can't just do things that are even mildly risky you know you have to be conservative 
And that's why I just feel like with this change, uh, you know, and, and the career dependency thing, I don't know, there's just been some, I mean, I, I whatever. I mean, I have some interesting insight into, I think, some of the cultural changes since the acquisition, you know, which, you know, could be attributed to this. But like, it, yeah, I think things are just a little too rogue for something that's that wide, widely used, in my opinion. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do want them to turn it off, right? But that probably <laughs> yeah. gonna—that's probably gonna break yeah. somebody, right? Yeah, like changing defaults. You don't want to change defaults. That's what I'm saying. You don't so. at all. You should try to preserve backwards compatibility as much as possible, like like with your life almost. You know what I mean? Like, so you know what? Somebody made a comment recently about how scripting tools like npm and a CLI or whatever, like these like little JavaScript modules that we write and there's people who have hundreds of JavaScript packages. Well, scripting is in particular, it's a very unique type of engineering. It's like there's a whole different set of constraints that they need to think about when like doing operating, when you're connecting with the OS and you have to manage like their dependency tree and matrix is like quite large, you know, like there's lots of different variations of like considerations to take into place. So, it's a hard job. I don't envy those engineers. So kudos. It's easy for us to judge, but I know it's, yep. you know, it's a hard job. So, Well, to be continued, I guess we'll find yeah. out what happens next in this yeah. saga. Likely nothing on this front in particular. Maybe just some more discussion, a little hemming mm-hmm. and hawing. We'd love to know what you think as a listener. Definitely hit us up. You can comment on changelog.com. You can Send us a tweet at JSPartyFM. You can hit us up in the Slack, of course. Two things I wanted to note before we call it a day. The first one, we are gearing up for Front End Feud. We have a very special, what I think will be a very exciting episode of Front End Feud in the works, but we need your help. Of course, Front End Feud is our survey-based show, a lot like Family Feud, and we need to have the survey says. So we need more people to take the Front End Feud survey. We have 55 respondents. We're trying to get to 100. You can find it at jsparty.fm slash ff, and one lucky respondent will win a free JS Party t-shirt. That's the very one I'm wearing right here. If you're watching the video, it's very comfortable. You want to go to there. So please help us out, fill out that survey and make Front End Feud awesome. And then secondly, we do take requests. So we'd love to hear what you would like to hear, guests or topics you want to have on the show. So you can let us know at jsparty.fm slash request. We'd be happy to do episodes that are requested by the listeners. Those are the two things. That's all we got for today. Chris and Amel, thanks for hanging out and sharing your knowledge and wisdom. That's JS Party for this week. We'll talk to you next time. you for listening to JS Party. We have a bundle of awesome podcasts for you at changelog.com. That includes our brand new show, Ship It with Gerhard Lazoo, a podcast about getting your best ideas into the world and seeing what happens. It's about the code, the ops, the infra, and the people that make it happen. Yes, we focus on the people because everything else is an implementation detail. Subscribe now at changelog.com slash ship it or simply search for ship it in your favorite podcast app. You'll find it. JS Party is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're brought to you by Fastly, Launch Darkly, and Linode. Next up on the pod, we're tripping through a wormhole as for Ross walks us through all the crazy tech he dreamed up on his latest web app. That episode will be hitting your podcast feed next week.